Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Stoicism is what's your response? Are you going to do all of those things that you don't really want to do, like be super emotional about it? Or are you going to go, okay, what's just the perception shift that I can make so that I don't have to have, be in that place of misery? How can I take responsibility for every single situation that I find myself in? And here's the hard part, even if I wasn't the one that put myself there. So memento mori is remember death. And so for me, it reminds me to do the thing that I don't want to do. And remember death means that, you know, this stuff is finite. And would I be okay if I died tomorrow? What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today's guest is Jill Coleman. So I was introduced to Jill at my friend Chris Harder's 40th birthday party, and I really didn't get a chance to connect with her there, but I definitely knew who she was, and everybody was telling me, you have to interview her. So I reached out, and she said yes. All right, so who is Jill Coleman? She is the owner of a hugely successful brand called Jill Fit. She helps people in the area of mindset, physique, and business. She has her BS in exercise science, a master's in nutrition. She's landed multiple covers of magazines like Self and Shape and Family Circle, to name a few. I love this conversation. We talk about everything from the mindset that she used to create her hugely successful international brand, how stoicism philosophy entered her life and how she applies it to the play hard part of her life. And she was also really open and willing to share some deeply personal stories about her marriage that she's never shared before in order to help people who may find themselves in similar circumstances. So you can find Jill on the socials at Jill Fit. Make sure to take a screenshot of this episode and tag Jill and me and share it on the socials. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Jill Coleman. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super pumped to talk to you today. You are so welcome. You know, in your intro, I explained to people that, you know, your expertise is in the area of mind, body, and business. But before we get into that, I'd love to start with just a little bit of your background, if that's okay. Sure. Absolutely. All right, cool. Can you tell us what it was like growing up in a big Boston Irish family with three brothers? Yeah. So it was uh, kind of crazy, you know, but it's like, like anything when you grow up and that's kind of all, you know. So my parents actually got divorced when I was really young. And so I was kind of passed around to different family members and things like that. But we all got treated, you know, kind of the same and grew up uh, just very hardworking. I think that my family instilled a work ethic in me that I'm super appreciative of. Um, I grew up in you know upper middle class, so I never was wanting for anything, but I was instilled. A lot of my friends didn't have jobs, didn't have to work. Um, I always had to work and, and make my own money. So I think that translated as I became an adult and I'm really grateful for that now. So yeah, it was kind of crazy, but we have a, we have a big drinking culture in our family as most <laughs> Irish 
<laughs> first, second generation Irish Americans do. It was interesting to get a lot of different sides of things and have, you know, kind of start asking questions and becoming an independent thinker. So I'm grateful for my religious upbringing as well. You know, I have this every time my wife is from Manchester, New Hampshire. So we go into Boston a lot when we go home to visit her family. And it's, it's like this whole like Mark Wahlberg kind of vibe in Boston. I just, I just love it there. You know, it's such a great spot. How do you think that, that, that environment, you know, shaped you, let's say? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is, you know, in an, a large Irish family, a lot of things go unsaid. Like, so, you know, kind of typical taboo topics don't. And, and that luckily I've been really fortunate to be able to bring some of that stuff out of my parents. And our relationship has gotten a lot deeper as a result of talking about what I would consider to be, you know, kind of like real life issues. But we didn't really talk about a lot of that stuff growing up. So, you know, having people in our family who were alcoholics or, you know, recovering drug addicts and stuff like that, we didn't really talk about a whole lot of that stuff. But at the same time, if someone had a problem with you, they said it right to your face. And so I do appreciate just like you kind of nailed it on the head that there's always going to like that Mark Wahlberg, you know, tell it to your face, tell it how it is very real and authentic. Um, you know, just busting your balls kind of a thing. And I, and I grew up in that environment too. So I was lucky to like, you know, when I got teased that to me meant that people liked me, like having me around, right. We just kind of always had that kind of teasing vibe. And, you know, my, my brothers and I are still very much like that. Our whole family is really tight because of that. So, but it's, been an evolution to start talking about some of the tougher stuff. You know, I grew up in a similar environment. I grew up in New York and my dad spent way too much time hanging out in the bar. And it was, it's kind of like Bronx Tale. If you've ever seen the movie, it's kind of like, you know, I remember as a kid, I used to walk out of my, my house. Uh, well, it wasn't a house, it was an apartment building. And uh, I'd walk down the, uh, the street into the bar and everybody was, you know, was very Irish. You know, a lot of people, second generation from Ireland. And that's exactly what it was like. But in many ways, I felt like it shaped me. So, you know, I guess we take the good with the bad, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I really love having that experience. And for me, it gave me a lot of different um, types of people to be kind of exposed to. And then I spent a lot of time in North Carolina. So I spent a good amount of time in the South. So I think that was also a different, a very different culture. Um, of course, now I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm getting all, you know, three sides of the country, I guess. But it's been really interesting to watch how where I live has shaped the people I'm around kind of shape my uh, professional journey, uh, personal journey, uh, romantic relationships, all that kind of stuff. So why North Carolina? How'd you wind up there? Yeah, I went to school there. I went to Wake Forest University, which is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a tiny little town. And um, after that, I got a job there, was dating a guy and ended up getting a job there and worked at my alma mater, running all their fitness programs for about eight years. And I started Jill Fit as an online business um, and then quit that job in 2010. So I've been doing, I've been fully online for about eight years now. Okay. So when you left North Carolina, did you go directly to Los Angeles? I did actually. I, um, you know, a lot of times people ask, you know, why did you leave or whatever? Cause I was, you know, I had a business that is location independent, which is, I was so grateful for. Uh, but yeah, I actually left my marriage. So I drove across country, packed up all my stuff. It took me like about a week to either sell or pack up everything that I owned in my car. And within a week I had a lease in Santa Monica and I was like, and I live here now. I didn't know anyone. And yeah, so it was a pretty big step, but I'm, I'm grateful. I've been here almost three years now. Okay. So you were married in North Carolina and then you said, I'm out of here. I'm going to LA. And you made a beeline to Santa Monica. I did. Were you scared? 
I was terrified, you know, so my podcast is, we've actually talked about this in our podcast as well. It's called the best life podcast. And, um, it was a, you know, it was the toughest thing I ever had to do. And I actually now like kind of speak on it publicly because it was something that I, it wasn't, I think for a lot of people you're in a relationship and it's not bad moment to moment, day to day. You just kind of know that nothing's going to change. And you know that you want something different, whether that's bigger or better, or just you want a different space. And so for me, I could have stayed. It would have been easy to stay. In fact, a lot of me wanted to stay. But I you know, just said, I'm going to be having the same conversation three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, nothing is going to be changing. And so I said, I really need to kind of physically move to start emotionally kind of moving as well. And so yeah, I woke up at 5 a.m., on the morning I was leaving and uh, had all my stuff in my car and I drove to Starbucks to get coffee. And I just sat in the parking lot at Starbucks and just like bawled my eyes out for 15 minutes. And I was like, this is the shittiest day of my life. This is really like the worst day of my life. And I could just go back right now. I could just go home right now and just like go back to bed and it'd be all good. I went the other way, took a left and got onto the highway. And I drove 16 hours on the first day to Kansas City. And I'm like crying the whole time and, um, you know, off and on listening to sad music and all that kind of stuff. And I got to Kansas City and it was like 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, you know what? This is just like the worst day of my life. This is like the hardest thing I've ever done. And I said, you know, if I can be grateful for five things on this day, then that's pretty, then I'm doing pretty good. And I did, I took out my, you know, my phone and my notes app and I wrote down five things I was grateful for. And they were all kind of future forward facing kind of things like the opportunity to meet new people, the opportunity for, I'm in the fitness space. So being in Los Angeles, there's a lot of opportunities out here. Uh, you know, the fact that I was financially independent enough to leave, I know a lot of women aren't. And so it was a crazy journey. It got a little bit easier. Uh, every mile I got closer to LA, but it was still disorienting. You know, you're, you're with someone for 10, 12 years. And then all of a sudden you are in a new place, meeting new people, uh, doing new things around new food and all that kind of stuff. So totally different culture shock. And I spent the first year in LA feeling pretty lonely and trying to like, just get my bearings outside of what had really been my identity for the last 12, 15 years. It was crazy. You know, I know that you are a fan of uh, Tim Ferriss, and we're going to get into that later in the interview. And one of the things I heard him say recently, and the, the reason why I'm spending so much time on where you are is because he taught me something. And what he taught me was, you know, we spend a lot of time on what we want to do and how we want to do it, but we give very little time to where we want to do it. And that really dictates a lot of our life. And so I, yeah, I'm starting to really investigate this myself. We're going to be moving to LA soon. Oh, awesome. So I love hearing stories like this about, you know, how you were able to take, you know, one life living in the South for 10 to 15 years and pack it all up and move out, uh, move out West. You know, exactly. It really is. And, you know, to be honest with you, I was so just green when I got here, you know, just having been, I had been to LA, you know, for events and things like that, but moving out here and living here, I was like a totally different game. And one of the things that has changed tremendously has been, um, my mindset around abundance versus kind of like scarcity. I think, you know, I'm in a small town, North Carolina, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Most people are married with kids by 30. And being out here, everyone kind of has big projects going on. They have things that they're creating. And so it's a totally different way of looking at things. There's no like timeline of, I have to have all the, the boxes checked off by the time I'm 35 or 40. It's kind of like, okay, I get to be excited about this thing and create this thing and be in abundance and meet cool people and have these conversations. And I think I'm not going to speak for, I know the other places too, but LA just seems to have 
a really amazing group of people who are doing really cool stuff. Were you raised around a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset growing up? You know, I was always so like I had mentioned, my parents divorced when I was young, and they were in the very two two different schools of thought. Um, I spent most of my childhood growing up with my mom and my stepdad, who are very financially well off and very um, frugal around money. Like they they spend money, invest in money. They're really smart with money. So if you ever read the book like the millionaire, the millionaire next door, like that's kind of the lifestyle that they have. So we were always like paying attention to it. We always had to earn it. You know, for me, we, we shopped at places like TJ Maxx and Marshalls. Like I was always on the hunt for a deal or coupon cutting and stuff like that. So I think maybe bringing up in a more of a scarcity mindset. And that was definitely the first several years of my professional career. I was a personal trainer full time. And for me, it was like, how many more clients can I get? How many more hours can I work? It was always, can I work more hours? And I got to the point where I was working like 70 to 80 hours a week in the gym, taking on more clients, uh, you know, more classes, anything I could do if I felt like I had an open hour. I would just work it because why wouldn't I if I had the time? And so I actually, you know, I know we're, we're kind of moving towards the Tim Ferriss conversation for our work week. When I listened to that book in 2007, I started making some serious changes to my schedule and working smarter instead of harder. So I think there was a transition around, you know, maybe the age of 27, 28 where I was like, okay, I don't want to be in scarcity all the time. And so I started adopting more of an abundance mindset, investing in myself, in my business, spending like literally tens of thousands of dollars each year on my business. And that was a huge shift. I came from the, I'll just figure it out myself. You know, I'll do it myself. If you want it done right, do it yourself kind of school of thought. And so over time, I really started transitioning into investing more, spending more. And the more I spent and invested smart in my business and in my brain and buying books and, you know, things like that, the more my financial situation improved as well. Yeah. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? It really is. You're like, if I spend ten thousand dollars, I'm going to go in debt. No, the ten is going to make you a hundred. You just, you just have to, you have to, you have to trust that process. What did you think you were going to be growing up, say in high school? You know, I always loved science, so I grew up as an athlete, and and I took all. I was always really good at math and science, and so I thought first I would just go into some sort of like biology type thing, whether I'd be working in a lab or I'd work with, you know, just something around either human biology or animal biology or something. So I went to school, and when I got to Wake Forest, I found out within the first couple of weeks that there's a degree in exercise science, and having been an athlete and a group fitness instructor and growing up and just loving that, like the human body. Um, I went into that and it was, you know, really hard on my parents at first because they were spending and like, luckily I was lucky enough for them to actually be able to send me to school and pay for my education. And they just thought I was going to be a gym teacher. And it got to the point after I graduated, I got a full-time job in fitness as a fitness uh, director at, like I said, the university. And after that, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just take the GRE and I'll apply for physical therapy school. Yeah. I told my parents, it was a really uncomfortable conversation. I was like, Hey, I'm just going to stay in fitness. In fact, I'm actually going to do a fitness competition. Oh, you don't know what that is. You basically just get super jacked and put this weird tan on and get in high heels and get up on stage. Like they were just, they thought I was out to lunch. Like they had no idea what any of that was. And they were terrified. They thought I wasn't going to make enough money. They thought, you know, I was throwing away my degree and you know now they're super proud of me and they're on board and in fact my mom was my very first assistant when i launched my business online but i grew up kind of just wanting to be in fitness i was lucky that i've always just loved it and for me it has had many iterations but um yeah i always knew i'd do something with with this 
You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, that's how I met Lori too. I did a fitness competition probably 10, 12 years ago. Uh, we've been friends ever since. And it's, it's weird how we start in this, you know, a lot of people listening have no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> but you're kind of dipped in chocolate and walking on stage and being judged 500 people. It's a really freaking weird life. But my goal with this podcast is to help people with mind, body, and business so that they can actually have the life that they've dreamed of when they started their business in the first place and not be a slave to it. So a good jumping off point into mindset would be to talk about a recent experience that you had at a Malibu coffee shop. Can you tell us the story of running into your ex-husband there and hearing someone scream, help my husband? Yeah. So this is crazy. Wow. You really did some good research, Rob. I appreciate that. Yeah. This is, um, this was so interesting to me. So just to give you guys a little background information, I moved to Los Angeles and, um, my husband ended up coming to LA about eight months later and we were just separated at the time and, you know, still kind of friend friendly, kind of trying to work things out, maybe even try to work things out in Los Angeles. And over time, we just figured that, you know, just not going to work for us. We ended up getting divorced, but we're still really good friends. We worked through a lot of our issues that were the romantic pieces. Uh, so anyway, you know, he lives down the street and we're both on the West side of Los Angeles. And so a few months ago, maybe six months ago, I'm with a girlfriend up in Malibu, which is about a 45 minute drive from where I'm at. And we go to brunch, we walk in and there's my ex-husband, Jade. And he's there with his friend, Gary. And I'm like, hey, it's so weird seeing you guys because we both live 45 minutes from this coffee shop, really tiny coffee shop in Malibu. And um, Jade is a naturopathic physician. So he has a background in medical. And we're not there maybe two, three minutes. And right behind me at the table behind me, I hear someone start screeching, yelling, and the table's pretty much between Jade's table and my table. And I turn around and I look right in the face of a man, probably 30 years old, who is dead. And so all of a sudden the staff come in and like no one knows what's going on. And they're starting to push our table out of the way, push our chairs out of the way. And I'm like helping to push a chair. Not 10 seconds later, I turn around and Jade is on the guy on the ground and administering CPR to the guy like and chest compressions within 10 seconds. He just thumped on his chest and 30 seconds later, the guy came to. Jay just walks back to his table and sits down. And my friend and I, we just go over to their table and we're like, can you believe that just happened? And I said to Jay, that guy was dead, correct? And he said, oh yeah. He goes, I couldn't find a pulse on him. And I think Jade was really, he wouldn't have said, said this publicly, but he was really proud of himself, I think. Because you always think to yourself, like, what would I do in a situation like that? And I'm sure other people who are listening have been in situations like that. I never had been. And so it was just all like shocking. Like I couldn't believe just the all the different things that had to happen for us to have that shared experience in that moment together. And so, yeah, it was pretty crazy. And it just re really made me think about just... Um, the coincidence of that and, you know, being there at the same time and the shortness of life, to be honest. And thank God the guy was okay. But man, that was crazy. You know, I heard a, uh, I heard a, uh, a quote once and it was coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous, which I think is really appropriate here. How did that experience make you view what's important differently? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, 
one thing that happened, so that happened. And then like two weeks later, not even two weeks, maybe like 10 days later, I am in Las Vegas for Cole Hatter's event it's called Thrive. And if you guys have been, it's amazing. It's an amazing event. Probably the best event I went to last year. And I'm there and we were supposed to go to this event at Mandalay Bay. And it was kind of getting late and we just decided, you know what? We're kind of tired. Let's just go to bed. So I go to bed. She goes and hangs with some, someone else for a while. And she comes in at 1am and she's like, did you hear about the shooting? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she goes, there's a shooting at Mandalay Bay. And I was like, what? We were supposed to be at that hotel at the time of the shooting. And this is within two weeks of the coffee shop incident. And so I am literally like, okay, what is the message here? Like, what is the message here? Is it that I'm playing too hard, you know, cause I can, uh, you know, for me, I love partying. I can play too hard. Is it that I'm being too, I'm not being safe enough. I'm being too irresponsible. Like what is the message here that these two things happen that seemingly are like near misses in a way, or just like even just death being so close to me. And so, you know, we make up things, you know, things mean whatever we make them. But for me, it was really about refocusing and just being like, wow, this is interesting that this is all happening at the same time. Why is that? And just doubling down on what I really want to create and what I really want to be and the vibes that I really want to have around me. So, what's amazing is that you're taking these stories and instead of going, "Oh shit, that was nuts," you're actually <laughs> going, "Well, where's the where's the lesson here? Like, what what can I take away from this and use?" You've mentioned your ex a couple of times, and if I could be perfectly honest with you, people don't really talk about their ex. We don't hear a lot about it, and I love how you are, and I think part of having a great mindset is doing the work to get there. And sometimes things have to be torn down to be rebuilt. Can you share as much as you're open to sharing the story of uh, you and your ex-husband, how you're in a place now where you can be friends? I mean, this is not an easy thing for a lot of people. And I think you can help a lot of people with this. Yeah, man. Thank you for asking that question. You know, it's one of the hard things because I have talked a little bit about it publicly because my ex-husband is kind of a, you know, he's, he has an online business as well and kind of a personal brand. Um, I think a lot of people take it to mean that they should be friends with their ex. And that's never, I would never assume to know what someone else should do as a result of, you know, a marriage going sideways. I just know for us, it was the right choice to stay friends and to work on the relationship after we knew that the romance was gone. And so I've, I've talked about this publicly plenty, but I found out in 2014 that my husband had had an affair for two years. He was, it had been over for about a year and a half. So that was a kind of confusing thing. I think as a strong independent woman, it was a, it was definitely a moment of embarrassment and shame for me. Cause I'm like, Oh, does this mean I am a doormat? Do I just need to leave the relationship right now? Do I need to pack up my stuff? And I think something that doesn't get talked about a lot is that you don't always want to do that. Like you still love the person and you built a life together and there's no like immediate threat. It would have been maybe a different conversation if he had, you know, been still involved with the other person or wanted to stay with them, but he wanted to work on our relationship and I did too. And so, you know, I didn't really talk about it a lot, even to my closest friends for a long time, because again, as an independent woman, the script is you're just supposed to leave, right? 
And so I started traveling on my own. I was like, well, this over here is not guaranteed. So I'm going to just hit the road. Like, I'm just going to like double down on myself. I got to figure this out. And so I ended up traveling by myself. I went to Amalfi in Italy and lived there for about a month by myself. I went to Sydney, Australia, lived there for a month, didn't know anyone, didn't know the language in, 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 in Italy. And I was in Paris for a while and I traveled around Europe and Jade and his family ended up meeting me in Europe towards the end of that. And we did this couple, you know, two, two week hike and we went to Italy for three weeks and it was an amazing trip. And Jade and I just said, you know what, everything's up in the air. And I'll remember, I remember just being so like uncertain and wanting answers from him and him just saying, well, Jill, I've never been through this either. I don't know. And neither one of us could really articulate and communicate what was wrong. We kind of knew that we felt uncertain. We knew that we felt angry. I felt angry, but the thing that made it, I think, better was each of us committed to coming back to the conversation. Even when we didn't really have the words and we were just stumbling over ourselves trying to communicate, we just kept coming back to the conversation and trying to have it, trying to have it. But we ended up on this trip with his family and we said, you know what, let's just not talk about our relationship for the time that we're here. We're kind of all stuck with the family. Let's just have a great time, right? Let's just enjoy this. And so at the end of that trip, we got back to Winston-Salem. And over the course of a week, we had a bunch of just, you know, kind of uh, state of the union kind of a thing. Where are we? How are you feeling? Where am I with things? He was maybe walking on eggshells around me. I was kind of stumbling, trying to figure out what I wanted and taking him into consideration. And that's when I just decided within a week that things had to change. And it was the right move for the relationship for me to move to Los Angeles. And after that point, um, I just recommitted to let's like let's figure out this friendship thing, uh, honest communication. And so it's that was about a year and a half ago, and we are better friends than we've ever been. And but there's no romantic anything. But yeah, we've continued to work on it. And a lot of people don't understand it. How could you be friends with someone who cheated on you? It's just like it's, I don't see it that way. I see it. We were doing our best. Things happen. We figure it out. And we, to me, honest communication kind of solves everything. For people who find themselves in a similar situation, what are the steps to forgiveness and trust? Because I'm sure that that had to be an issue somewhere in this. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I definitely did not trust him. You know, I didn't trust myself, really. The thing that really was a huge turning point for me was asking myself how I wanted to live. And I think for a lot of people, forgiveness feels like condoning the other person's behavior. And so we feel like when we maintain our anger and we maintain our self-righteousness, that somehow it keeps them on the hook. What I found, what I came to find was that I was the only one being hurt by that. I know it sounds so cliche, but it really just came down to like how I wanted to live my life. And really, I saw that my distraction and my anger and all the things that my hurt and all those things were keeping me from moving on. I think you should have to evaluate how you want to feel moment to moment and also go, okay, if I forgave this person, like how does that really take away from my power? And it really doesn't. In the moment to moment, day to day life, it actually, to me, it actually empowers you. It's so great. You know, what, what came to mind is a very simple, basic example, but it's like when somebody flips you off on the side of the road, like you don't have a bad day at all, but they're, they're still pissed for three hours after it. You mentioned Amalfi and ironically, him and I got married in Amalfi. What is the significance of the words memento mori to you? So memento mori is remember death. So it's from a Stoic philosophy. You know, it really does mean 
creating or living life to the fullest. To me, remember death reminds me that this is finite, that I have a limited amount of days or hours or minutes that I get to live and be in this space. And so for me, it reminds me to take action, to do the scary stuff, to um, invest, to take that, to make that choice when I am scared. And there's a choice, you know, point, whether it's to do something that is keeping me in my comfort zone or that's going to stretch me. It, I always go to, okay, what would the comfortable me do? And it's probably going to be the safe, secure option. And what would the stretch goals or what's the, the next step or the way do I can expand and not feel comfortable doing it necessarily, but I know that it's going to be the thing for me. And so Memento Mori is like, is that push that I need to remember in the moment to do the thing that I don't want to do. And remember death means that, you know, this stuff is finite. And would I be okay if I died tomorrow? Would I feel as though I had lived life to the fullest? Have I told the people I love how I feel about them? Have I been honest? Have I tried to communicate things or have, or have I spent time being resentful and, you know, gossiping and avoiding and deflecting and and defending and all these kind of things that to me are kind of base level behaviors, or I have, I live full out and have I really fully expressed myself? So true. You know, my dad passed last year and this conversation comes up in my mind more and more and more because it seemed like I blinked my eye and he was gone. You mentioned uh, stoicism. How have you applied stoicism in your life? And maybe explain to people that don't know what it is. What is it? Stoicism as a philosophy has a lot of different parts, but for me, really the modern day stoicism, if you guys are interested in more of like a to me, more accessible version is really Byron Katie's work. She's my kind of like number one because she says that reality is king, right? Reality is king. So if something, if I want reality to be different and I'm feeling a negative emotion as a result of that. So for example, say, you know, I look at my bank account and, you know, the number in there is not what I want to see. And then I get really upset at myself for not having the amount of money that's in there, right? She would say the gap between what is reality and what I'm wanting in the moment that's creating stress and anger and self-loathing or shame or what, or embarrassment or whatever those negative feelings are in the moment, I'm insane because it's not, right? Reality is what it is. It doesn't mean we can't take steps to boost our bank account, but the feeling of self-loathing and self-berating and you know shame and anger and guilt and all those kind of negative emotions are not useful. And so stoicism, I think it's a little bit different. So stoicism is you want to have emotional integrity. Emotional integrity means if I feel angry, I want to feel and acknowledge that I'm angry, right? So this is not avoiding negative emotions. It's using a negative emotion as a red flag for where there's some place to investigate. So if I'm feeling angry and I'm walking around and honestly, like when I did with my ex-husband, right? If I'm going through life and I'm feeling just low grade hurt, low grade anger, low grade pain, emotional pain. And I, and I don't want that anymore. I'm like, it's okay. It's normal. It's human. I acknowledge that I'm in my emotional integrity. I feel angry. I feel hurt. I'm saying it. I'm in my emotional integrity, but then I can also next step realize that I don't want to live that way. And so stoicism is about acknowledging and then going, okay, how can I maybe just become more objective with this? And that's literally just the process that goes through my head about, okay, how can I just make this clinical 
so that I don't have to get angry and pissed and, you know, shame and embarrassment around this, even to talking about my husband's affair, right? That could easily be something. And I'm plenty, I had plenty of years of that could easily be something that's so shameful that I couldn't even say it out loud or even tell my friends. But for me, it's just clinical. It's just something that happens in my life. I'm not even say it happened to me. It's something that happened in my life. And as a result of that, I can make a choice. And we're all going to have issues like that, whether we lose somebody, like you lose your dad or you you know, lose a loved one or you move away, or there's always going to be these big changes. And we can sit as still as we want to. And life is always going to find a way to give us these things in my mind. And so to me, it's all in how we respond to that. So stoicism is what's your response? Are you going to do all of those things that you don't really want to do, like get angry and throw stuff around and, and really be super emotional about it? Or are you going to go, okay, this happened. What's the solution? What's the action that I can take now? Or even what's just the attitude shift, the perception shift that I can make so that I don't have to have, be in that place of misery. So if you guys are interested in this, definitely Byron Katie's work for sure. The other one is Ryan Holiday, right? Yep. Yeah. Ryan Holiday, Obstacles, The Way, Ego is the Enemy, both great books and have a stoicism kind of bent. Yeah. So if I'm saying this correctly, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, is the lesson here to acknowledge the feeling and embrace the negativity in a sort of worst case scenario so that it's really not as bad as you think? I think it's maybe to not attach um, a good or a bad or right or wrong to it. So if I look at my bank account and it's a lot lower than I want it to be, there's a lot of opportunities for me there. So for example, I can be, I can blame someone else. I can say, well, you know, if I didn't have to take care of my family, then I wouldn't, you know, I'd be able to have more money in my account. Or if I didn't have to, you know, my boss wasn't this way, I'd have a raise by now. Like we can, and I think a lot of us do that. That's kind of like a base level, just kind of first knee-jerk reaction to maybe defend and deflect, blame and complain. Or we can be like, okay, what can we actually do if we want to double what's in there? What's one action step that I can take right now? And that and that action step does not need to be emotionally charged. It doesn't have to have an emotional charge of good, bad, right, or wrong. It can literally just be like, okay, this is a state of affairs. Where do I go from here? And also not make it mean that you're bad in some capacity, right? Like, oh, it doesn't mean that you suck or you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't start your business or you like, we don't have to make it mean a whole bunch of things that it doesn't necessarily mean. It just is what it is. It's the reality of the situation. So what can we do moving forward, either in the, in the form of an attitude change, perception change, or, and like, we could just be grateful for that. We have that much in our account, right? That's a perception change or we can be more action oriented. To me, you always have control of your effort. You always have control of your attitude. And I know that sounds like super cliche and really hard, especially when you're in that place of just feeling so bad and you're in so much pain. Believe me, I get that. Uh, to make that shift feels um, like a betrayal of yourself sometimes. And so that's mainly what I'm saying. I'm saying feel the emotion and then get clinical with it. Okay. So what would you say were the steps that got you out of blame and complain into what you're really known for, which is relentless positivity? <laughs> yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time in blaming and complaining. Whatever our initial response to something is, anger, like you mentioned the guy like flipping you off, like that's a, that's a base level default brain response, right? That's like not a high level. That's not like front of the front, frontal lobe response. That's like a base level response, right? If we feel pissed off, we yell or we, we get angry, we throw something. And most of us operate there most of the time versus asking yourself like, okay, I'm in a situation, maybe it wasn't my actions that got me to this place. For example, oh, my husband had an affair. 
I'm here, I'm left to deal with the aftermath. I can be really pissed. And believe me, I spent a lot of time being really pissed. And then I was just like, but also it did happen. And even though I hate that it did, and even though because it did, I have to do something else now, I don't want to do. Like I got to move to California. I have to have California rent, right? And I got to do all this stuff different. But at the same time, I'm looking at it like, how can this change serve me? How can this deepen my understanding of responsibility and ownership? And so I think moving to a relentless positivity is a choice. But I think you do have to spend some time in that kind of base level behavior first, notice it and go like, okay, and make it a conscious choice that you don't necessarily want to do that. So then when you kind of make that choice of, I don't really want to live in this place of feeling like a victim because I feel really helpless. How can I take responsibility for every single situation that I find myself in? And here's the hard part, even if I wasn't the one that put myself there. Yeah, you know, you know, you got this when uh, you get rear-ended and you say it's, you know, okay, that was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, sorry. You know what? You know what? I, I'm not quite there, but where I am is like, you know what? Yes. Is it a little bit inconvenient? Sure. But like everyone's doing their best, right? Isn't everyone just like doing their best and like, okay, these things happen. Like it's totally fine. Like you just figure it out and like, you know, I'll get the money from your insurance company. I don't know. Yeah. We'll just, we'll deal. Well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we talked a little bit about uh, Tim Ferriss. Can you describe how you use uh, practical pessimism, which is a Tim Ferrissism in your life? Yeah, no, I love this concept. So I think he actually did a TED talk on it. I came across it years ago. And this is one of my favorite productivity tools. Practical pessimism is really just a systematic way of looking at all the scenarios that could happen if you take that big leap. And so, okay, I'm going to start my own business. Then the question to ask is, okay, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen if I start my own business? And so most people will go to, you know, I'm broke, I'm homeless, I'm out on the street, you know, whatever that looks like. I have to move back with my parents, which are probably my, my worst one. And then you ask yourself, okay, two questions. Number one, if that happened, if that did transpire, number one, could you handle it? Like, could you actually handle it? Would it be, wouldn't be awesome, but could you handle it? And the answer to that is most likely yes. And then the second question is, if that did transpire, then what is one single step that I could take in that place to get me back to baseline? Yeah, I mean, there's such freedom in worst case scenario because it's generally not as bad as you think it's going to be. It never is. It never transpires. But I think just having the awareness of what could happen allows for it, it for some reason, just won't happen because you've already seen all the angles. All right, let's move into business. Um, we've been dancing around your company a little bit. We've talked about Jill Fit. You made the leap from doing fitness competitions uh, to running the super successful Jill Fit brand. Why did you create Jill Fit? You know, it was actually, I know this sounds kind of strange, but it was really to help me pull myself out of the misery I was in as a full time trainer and completely body obsessed. When I read a book called, well, I read the four hour work week. So I started making some schedule changes and charging more money and doing things like that. And I read another book called inbound marketing. It was put out by the founders of HubSpot and inbound marketing is just like, Hey, instead of going out and trying to interrupt people's day with my offer, I'm going to start a blog or I'm going to do social media and I'm going to just give away amazing content for free. And so I blogged every single day for two years straight. And what I started noticing was 
the content I was putting out and the clients I started taking on at a distance, it was now not about me anymore. It was about them. And it was about helping them make a transformation, whether there's a physical transformation or a mental transformation or a professional transformation. I started getting addicted to getting my clients results for me. So yes, I started Jill Fit out of a love of fitness and nutrition, but over time it has become a way to help people achieve their goals, whether that is in mindset, making those shifts, relationships, uh, you know, business or kind of the physique change that they want. Okay. So you've got Jill Fit that is up and running and successful now. So now you've got something that's serving your life. So what's the next level for you in this area? What do you know that you need to outsource or automate now, but you just haven't been able to pull the trigger on it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I am like kind of a recovering kind of type A control freak type. So a lot of stuff, some some things in my business, some like tech stuff in my business that I have when I didn't have any money, I had to learn myself. And so I just kind of kept that up. I've been like, you know what? I need to have some level of mastery over this because I can't quite trust someone else to do it as good as me. No one's going to care about my business as much as I do. And so I do have some blocks, but I'm trying, I'm grappling with my control around those things. And by the way, like another conversation that's kind of tangential is around boundaries and being able to say no. And one of the things that I've really started to do is I want everyone in my life to be autonomous so that I can be autonomous. So if you're a mom or you're a dad and you're listening to this and you feel like other people, a lot of people need you in your life and you feel almost resentful because of that, ask yourself, am I enabling or am I helping someone else in my life be autonomous so that I can be more autonomous? If you're my friend or your family family member and you come to my house, my friends always laugh because I'm like, this is a DIY household. I want you to treat it like your own house because I'm not going to like help you get a glass of water. Like That's up to you. And the more autonomous I've made my friends and my family, the more autonomy I have to be able to work in my zone of genius as long as it's communicated. Love that. Okay, so let's let's talk about play hard. So let's move on to the play hard section of the show, which I kind of define as really anything outside of work. It's kind of the anti Gary V. You know, we spend a lot of time on work and not a lot of time on play as hard charging entrepreneurs. If you had a magic wand, describe what play hard would look like for you. Yeah. So, you know, I actually do play pretty hard and I rest a lot too. So I work really hard and I have, I read a book called, um, the powerful engagement a while ago. I don't know if you've heard that book, but it's from by, uh, Tony Schwartz and Jim Lair. Tony Schwartz. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He's so amazing. And it really gave me permission to have strategic downtime in my day. And so obviously you have this podcast, you know, he's all about this stuff. And so really my energy is oscillating throughout the day. So I have times where I'm super focused on work, extremely focused, get a lot done. And then I have times where I'm completely off and I oscillate those things throughout the day and throughout the week. And so when I'm playing hard, it is mostly social time. Um, I have really tight knit family. We spend a lot of time together. We travel. I have a puppy, so I'll take her for walks and really just give myself a little mental reset. And then I sleep like I, you know, I probably sleep like eight or nine hours a night always. So for me, it is about these more restorative type things. Exercise for sure is one huge one. And then social time around friends and family and not just social time, like, you know, drinking and going to bar, but it's mostly about conversation. Then I like getting into, you know, some tough sub- subjects, talking about relationships, talking about more high level stuff. And it doesn't drain me. It, it used to maybe 10 years ago, but I, uh, to me, I love that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, it's super stimulating. You know, it's it's funny you talk about the power of full engagement. When you get a sec, if you look at my Instagram post today, I talked about the power of full engagement, which is so ironic that we're having this conversation. But there's a great uh, podcast that Tim Ferriss just did, came out yesterday with a guy named Daniel Pink. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. I love One of my favorite books is um, To Sell as Human. Um, never read any of his stuff, but I'm going to after this. And he talked about um, what you just described, which is the different cognitive capacities that we have in the morning versus the afternoon and, and in the evening. You know, we're the highest in the morning and in the afternoon. It's called the trough, where you drop down about 50% in cognitive ability. And then in the evening, it's the recovery phase uh, where it comes back. And the point is that you're going to want to do your creative stuff, unless you're a night owl. You're going to want to do your creative stuff in the morning, You answer your routine emails in the afternoon because you don't need all that cognition. And in the evening, you get a little bit of it back and you can do things like uh, phone calls or some brainstorming that doesn't require like super critical thinking. So I love how you consider that in your day. Yeah, for sure. I think it is one of those things to also just know yourself and, and make sure that you are getting those kind of mental resets throughout the day if you can. I know a lot of people don't like I'm I'm lucky enough to be able to like work from home and you know ha- create my own schedule, but I think even if you're working in an office, you can go out like at lunchtime, go sit outside or go for like a, a little leisure walk in or even for 20 minutes or and they've been showing a research that even 5 minutes of meditation can really reset you mentally as well. When was the last time you cried tears of joy? I mean, where you were like, "Holy shit, I can't believe this is my life. This is amazing." You know, it's really interesting. I don't remember the last time, but the most important time was recently. And it was the reason why my friend Danny Jay and I started the podcast called The Best Life Podcast. Both of us, I was living in LA. I've been out for about a year. And she had just a month prior had found out that her husband had also had an affair. And they were together for, again, 10 years, very similar to my story. And she was really stuck. And they weren't really in a position, she wasn't really in a position to stay. And I said, you know what? Come out to LA. You can sleep on my couch for however long you need to get your stuff together, you know, and deal with this. And I got your back. Let's do it. And so she came out and she was a mess, right? Like she, all this happened so fast. She didn't really have time, but we were talking about stuff. And I had this place in Santa Monica, four blocks back from the beach. I was on the fifth floor and I had a patio outside. My place was so small that the only place you could really hang out was out on the patio. So I had, you know, table and chairs out there and we're drinking wine and we're watching the sunset. And there's this beautiful, like pink and purple sunset just on the, as a backdrop. And I just looked at her and both of us, like, like really just in a place that we never thought we would be in, in our life. And I looked at her and I was like, can you just believe that we get to be here right now? Like, this is just the best life. Isn't this just like the best life? And both of us started cracking up and like, and like laughing and crying at the same time that it was like, just this really odd dichotomy of like a really kind of shitty situation that you never thought you were going to be in and totally heartbroken. But at the same time, looking around, being like, we get to have this amazing conversation and we, you know, connect with each other and we're having this glass of wine and, you know, we're four blocks back from the beach in this amazing city and look at all the opportunity around us. And I remember it was just like, and now we always just say like, this is the best life. Can you believe we get to do this? And just feeling in gratitude in the moment. And that was a time that we were both like laughing and also just crying like, wow, this is so amazing that we get to be here. And I'll never forget that. It was really important time in both of our lives. What a beautiful moment. If you had all the time and the money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be and why? 
Well, right now, um, I'm always interested in learning like new skills and things like that. I think because I'm so math and science oriented, language has always been hard for me. Um, just not the way my brain works. And I have friends that, that, that is how their brain works. And, you know, they can speak French better than I can after being there for two weeks. And I took seven years of French. So I think for me, maybe learning a new language, but also timely because I'm in LA, um, I'm feeling a lot of pressure to learn how to surf too. So I'm interested in that. It's not necessarily comfortable for me, like being in the middle of the ocean with like, you can't really see what's under the water, (laughs) but I am excited to learn that. So I think Definitely more like re- recreational stuff, maybe more physical stuff like snowboarding, surfing, those kind of things, just spending more time in nature, and then maybe potentially learning Italian for, for real this time. Well, we are, uh, we're absolutely on the same path here. I am, um, I'm going to take a month and move to Florence next year with my family to specifically learn uh, Italian. So I'm starting, I'll put this bug in your ear. There's a, um, you know, I'm old enough to call it a tape. I don't know what to call it anymore. I can't even call it a CD anymore. I don't know what it is. An MP3 with a company called uh, Pimsler. If you haven't heard of them, they train uh, the army on languages and I just started it and it's really, really good. So you can put that, yeah, you can put that on your list. What's the thing that your soul has been really calling you to do, but for whatever reason, you just haven't pulled the trigger on it? You know, I'm not exactly sure. I'm getting a little bit itchy to move somewhere else. So I don't know if that's exactly my soul calling. I do feel like I'm ready for another change, like a physical change. You know, I'll I'll be honest with you. I actually did the thing that I hadn't done about six months ago, which was join a mastermind. I had been spending a lot of money on courses and books and conferences and things like that, but it had been a couple of years since I had had a mentor. And, um, so I took the leap to spend tens of thousands of dollars for, um, to be a part of a, a high level mastermind. And I think it was something that I knew that I needed, but I think I was scared because, you know, I was not going to be the smartest person in the room. And I think for a long time as a coach, I think it's easy for us to get into that coaching space where we, you know, we feel like we know more than the people around us or the people around us are always asking us for advice or asking us for insights or systems. And so I had gotten to that place and I realized like, man, it's been a long time since I've been around people that are like next level success of where I want to be. And so I took the leap to join the group and I'm so happy I did. To me, it was exactly what I needed, but it has not been comfortable for sure. Because again, I'm, I'm definitely probably, you know, one of the scrubbiest people in the group, which is cool. I'm, I'm fine with that. But it is, um, that I think was something that had been calling to me for a while. And I finally made that leap and it's bringing back some old insecurities, if I'm being honest, but it was, it's really been great so far. And I'm like, oh yeah, I recognize this now. The feeling of not good enough, or I recognize the comparison trap. It's been a while. Um, and so reevaluating those feels really good. It feels like a puzzle that I get to solve. How great is that, that you're able to look at that with such a high level objectivity? You know, lots of people talk about their morning routine, but I'm more interested in your evening wind down routine. What's that look like for you? Yeah. Thank you for asking. So I go to bed super early <laughs> unless I'm traveling or there's something going on. For the most part, if I don't have anything going on, I don't really, I don't watch television. So for me by eight o'clock at night, I'm totally just spent for the day. Cause I like to wake up early. I usually wake up between five and six and I get a lot of creative work done. And usually like you had mentioned before, you do have that like creative reset at night. And I definitely experience that from like about five to seven. That's where I do most of my webinars that's where I do most of my like teaching stuff, my, my big course st- kind of work videos. 
And then by about 6.30 or 7, I'm pretty tapped out. My dog, talk about, um, you know, kind of outsourcing. My dog actually goes to daycare. I know it's kind of silly, but... Um, <laughs> I thought you I thought you were going to say my dog gets his leash and just goes walk himself. Walks, walks himself. <laughs> that would be some... Re- I mean, I'm waiting for that to happen. I'm like, this is a DIY household. You have to feed yourself. <laughs> so, yeah, no. So she goes to daycare a couple days a week, only the days that I have like a lot of my scheduled calls and things like that. So I usually will walk to go get her and that's an hour and a half round trip. So I usually catch sunset if I can. And listen to podcasts, listen to audiobooks, just listen to music, kind of zone out, uh, do that hour and a half walk. And I usually get home between, like, you know, around between 7 30 and 8 30. And I usually go to bed. <laughs> so for me, I don't, I used to have a glass of wine or something like that. But at this point, I'm mostly trying to a little bit cu- cut back on the social stuff because I do so much of that when I'm traveling. And so, yeah, I try and just like prioritize sleep and try and get in bed by like 8 30, 9 o'clock at the very latest. Did you have to train yourself to get out of that glass of wine two or three at the end of the night? A lot of people struggle with that. Yes, I did. You know, and I didn't, and I was really gentle with myself because I just knew that, you know, I, I went through the same thing when it came to food or like the all or nothing mentality around food. I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to give myself rules around this. I'm just going to slowly start tapering off when I'm at home. So one of the biggest triggers for me was if I do a webinar, I do a lot of webinars. So like I'm teaching a lot. And then if I get off the webinar, sometimes these things go like hour and a half, two hours. And I'm like, Ooh, I deserve a glass of wine, right? That's the time. So I know my trigger times are. So I've started just either going for a walk at that time, or I'll have like a big salad or something that like other something else that I get to look forward to that makes me feel relaxed and recharged. That's not wine. So I didn't make any rules. I was just like, slowly, I'm going to not drink wine when I'm at home by myself. And you know, for other people, I'm sure it's totally fine. But I think for me, that was a, a really easy thing to do, but it took a couple months. You know, it's so funny you said that. I'm laughing because last night my wife and I said, okay, look, we got to dial the wine back. So let's go take a walk. So we took a walk. We passed five outdoor bars and it was night. <laughs> we sat down, we had two glasses of wine. We had a great conversation. I said, okay, well, let's try this one again tomorrow. Yeah. You know, the mirror neurons are really like, they're firing for sure. Like I'm walking down Main Street in, in Venice and everyone's out at happy hour and I'm definitely feeling the the vibe, you know, the sun's going down. It's that was one of the things when I first moved to LA was every day felt like vacation. So it was like Tuesday afternoon at like two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, Oh, let me just have a glass of wine, like, you know, done for the day. And I was like, I got to figure this out. So, you know, it's, I haven't missed it. I enjoy it when I'm out with people. To me, it's been a super simple, you know, switch, but it, yeah, it took some time, but I don't limit myself. Like, I'm not like, Oh, I'm in a dry January or anything like that. I'm just, you know, when I'm out, I'll have a glass or two, but when I'm home, it's a no. That's really, really great. All right. So we're going to do a couple of social media questions, a few rapid fire, and we will wrap up. Uh, put out a tweet for some questions for you. And I have three of them. The first one is Brianna wants to know, I'm struggling finding my authentic voice online. Do you have any tips? I, I love that. That's a, such a great exercise because a lot of us don't really know. We kind of go, oh, I should do this because that's what Lori Harder does, or I should do this because that's what this person does. Um, So it's really easy to look at examples of success and just think that you should slot yourself into that. However, that's the most inauthentic thing. One thing I can tell you that's really interesting is polarization is good on the internet. So don't be so scared to be yourself because you need to have a level of polarization or at least uh, an opinion so that people can be a little bit divided on you. 
So the people who are not getting the most traction are usually the most just kind of lukewarm people who are like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, you can try that if you want. Like very just lukewarm. No one really, people are like, oh, their stuff is okay, but no one really feels fired up about what they're teaching or what they're saying. And so your authentic voice is maybe start with what you don't agree with. So for me, going to, looking around your industry, if you're in health and fitness or you're in personal development, look at what other people are doing. You know, this is something I did really early on. Was I would go and read the blogs of people I did not agree with, and as a result of that, I was able to form an opinion. Right? I'm like, oh, that's bullshit. And so I would like write my own kind of counterpiece, not like naming the person or anything, but it would give me an idea for how I wanted to shape my message to get my point across. So think, you know, the easiest way to be more authentic is to realize what you don't stand for and what you won't stand for first. And that helps you create a message that is more likely to be on brand with what you actually believe. So go out and look in your industry. What gets you fired up? What gets you pissed off? And then from there, you can create your own opinions. And most likely that's going to come off really authentic. And that's going to be good for your traction as well. Such great advice um, and simple structure. You can actually follow that like a recipe. Uh, Okay, so Alyssa wants to know, I know you love to travel. What's your next bucket list place that you want to travel to? Oh, so I'm actually planning a trip to Paris in uh, for the month of June because it's my favorite city on earth and I've been there a bunch of times. So I know it's not necessarily a bucket list, but for me, that is definitely, uh, I, I miss it if I, it's been too long. So it's been the month of June in Paris. But the second thing is that I have never been to, I haven't not been to South Africa and I'm interested in going to Africa and doing that like for real. I'm not really like super pulled to a lot of other you know places at this moment, but I definitely want to go to South Africa for sure. Let's talk about that because I just got back. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. I did, um, I did Cape Town uh, for, uh, for New Year's. It was ridiculously amazing. So when you get to the place where you're ready to do it, let me know. I'll, I'll dial you completely in because I did like three months of research for it. Amazing. I'm, I'm going to be just uh, calling from your itinerary. You got it. I'm a little fanatical with an itinerary. Chris and Lori will tell you about it. Um, and the last one is, Natalie, how do I get your apps? Oh, my abs. Jeez. Um, you know, so I don't ever do abs necessarily. And I'm not going to say abs are made in the kitchen because look, I like a glass of wine and I like cheese. But what I would do that I think does help over time. And one thing that I've always been consistent with is sprinting. So I would do a hundred meters, probably uh, eight to 10 times resting as long as you need to in between. Because whenever you're doing sprinting, the most important thing is intensity, which means that you should take a good amount of rest between each one so that you can generate that same amount of intensity and force again. So even if you do 50 meters or, you know, 75 meters, that is totally cool. As long as you're generating as much force as you possibly can and sprinting as hard as you can. So obviously that has to be done outside, not on a treadmill because you want to self-generate it. Correct. Yep. Got it. Well, this is one of the advantages. This is why I'm going to have to move to Los Angeles to get my abs. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah. All right, so we're going to move into the rapid fire round. Answer these as quickly or as slowly as you would like. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Getting shit done for sure. I'm a, I'm a huge action taker. I just I will get something done if you if it's important. What's one of the things that you're afraid of right now? Ah, uh, you know, I'm getting to the age where I'm a little bit um, I'm a little bit scared for my parents' health. And so I think that that's on my mind. Like anytime they call me like randomly, I'm like, are you okay? <laughs> you know, I know it's not like the best way, but that is definitely something I'm, I'm a little bit scared of. 
Are there any particular books that you've reread or if it's better stated, what one book have you reread the most? Yeah. So I mentioned, I mentioned Byron Katie's work a lot, mostly because to me, it's the most accessible to personal development book. Um, and she has a book called a thousand names for joy and it's her interpretation of the Tao Te Ching. And that's, I read that book all the time because the chapters are really short. So I'll just open up to a random page and read like a three or four page chapter. And it just like is a little mental reset for me. Got it. Love it. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but never will? I mean, you know, so anyway, you know, I passed out my car, so I pretty much only took the essentials to LA, but I did bring a couple of things. One is a sleep. Uh, it's so silly, but it is a um, pillowcase that says sweet dreams, Jillian on it from when I was born. I got it when I was, when I was literally born. So like that came oh, with me to LA. That's beautiful. I love yeah, that. So I don't think that that will ever go. I love that. I have a three-year-old, so I hope someday she'll say the same thing. That's beautiful. Uh, last question. If you had a, if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could really be on anything that you like to do or have a passion for or anything else in the world at all, what would it be? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I definitely have a lot of things I've I've talked about that I would definitely want to do a TED talk on. But in terms of maybe things that I don't talk about that I'm passionate about, something that's more relevant to me now, especially having been kind of dropped into the dating world mid thirties, which I never thought I would be. I haven't been single since I was 18. I think one of the things that has been top of mind for me is uh, aging as a woman. And I know a lot of people have talked on this, but like, you know, kind of the paradox of, you know, wanting to remain youthful or the stigma that's around aging as a woman. But then again, being an independent woman and wanting to own that as well. And so what does it mean to kind of maybe buck culture, societal trends and also be someone who is you know, a place of dating in your mid thirties. And it's a different landscape than it was, you know, 20 years ago. So probably something around that. I actually wrote a a blog just kind of wading into the waters of this on my medium account, which is not necessarily my full-time blog. It's medium.com. You can search Jill Fett if you want to read it. It's about dating in your thirties. It's about aging as a woman and kind of all what that means. And so I'd have to obviously flush it out a lot more (laughs) to talk about it fully because I definitely do not feel like an expert in it, but it's, it's something that's been top of mind. You know, you are such an articulate, authentic, and beautiful soul. And I am so grateful that you uh, took the time to do this. I know this was a long interview, and I know that there were a lot of questions that were super personal. And I'm so grateful that you went with it and you went for it. And I think you're going to help a lot of people. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? You know, I don't. I just want to say, Rob, I really appreciate this. This is, you know, I was asked a lot of questions that I've never been asked before, and it really made me think. And um, you're just an amazing interviewer, and it's just, just such an honor to be on your podcast and to know you as a person. And I look forward to your moving out to Cali so we can spend some time together. You got it. Thank you for doing this. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.